Well, we're going to be continuing in uh, the theme of really what is discipleship. Our approach to this has been to look at definitions, terminology, try to see some of its significance. And those last three items sort of keep changing as I encounter new sort of things or angles on it. <clears throat> and so today, hopefully, we'll be getting to the context of discipleship. For our definition of discipleship, we went to the scriptures. Uh, you can go to our Greek lexicon and get a basic definition of the word. But as usual, it's lexicons are like dictionaries for us. If you want to know what someone means, really look at the context. I mean, hopefully when we pick a word to use in a sentence and <clears throat> we, uh, we use it in a context, hopefully it's close to what the word means. But again, the definition of words is based on word usage, not uh, absolute lexical definition. <clears throat> so when we look at the term disciple in itself, inherently it means an adherent, a follower, a learner. But as we see how it's used in the Gospels, we see that the terminology of disciple is someone who is a personal follower of Jesus, a personal follower of Jesus and his teachings, especially as presented in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And that's what, if you may remember, we've sort of a strange thing that disciple, uh, terminology of disciple, only occurs 268 times and they are all in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. I found that interesting when I was sort of looking things up. So what is a disciple? Someone who is actively following Jesus. Someone who has personal attachment to Jesus. Someone who is submissively learning from Jesus. Someone who is developing their own character for the Lord. And they have comprehensive obedience to the Lord. There's no... Nothing out of bounds. Well, God wants this, but I can't do that. I can only go this far. It's, no, there's comprehensive obedience. And so that are sort of the components of a disciple. Now, beyond definition, there's sort of a current usage of terminology, current vocabulary, if you will. And I tried to approach it by going to Grandma's kitchen and thinking about how do you, how do you bake cookies when you bake cookies, you have containers of different ingredients for cookies, and the right blend of these ingredients will produce a really good-tasting cookie. Um, but we've got to blend them together, and the labels on the jars matter. If someone goes and puts salt in the sugar jar or vice versa, you've got a problem. Your label doesn't match the content. Or if someone goes and switches the labels, then again, your label doesn't match the content and you're going to have undesirable results uh, when you try to make your cookies. Well, it's the same with the Bible. In the Bible, there's a lot of material covering a lot of core categories, and we use sort of descriptions of these categories because we want to sort of topically arrange them so that we can look at them and examine them, and you know, that's a good thing to do. And so we have labels on jars of biblical material we could call justification or sanctification, trinity, and then our perspective is discipleship. Now, these labels are important, and what's in the jars are important, just like making cookies. If you start mixing justification and sanctification, how well does your life go? When you start thinking, well, God's not accepting me this week because I'm not doing that well, what happens if you start mixing sanctification into justification? 
you end up being depressed and you end up, you know, not, you know, having a hard time in your own life. It's hard enough to, to walk in holiness. It gets really hard when you start switching the labels in your own mind. And so it's important not to mix those things up, not to switch the labels. Not all, all labels are necessarily the same. Some labels readily come from Scripture. We can talk about the doctrine of justification. We can talk about the doctrine of sanctification. Those are term, that's terminology that just emerges from the Scripture. And then there are other labels, and it's not that they're sort of unbiblical <coughs> labels. It's just they're non-biblical. That is, they don't emerge from Scripture. They are sort of composed rather than emerge uh, and borrowed from Scripture. That doesn't make it wrong, but it just does make it, to make it, well, you know, if we're going to use this label, is it a good one? That becomes the question. Is it a useful one? Um, <clears throat> Trinity is sort of an example of one of those labels. It's been well-defined for 1,500 years. We all, as Christians, know what that label means. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and so we trust that under that label is going to be material of the Bible that talks about the relationship between uh, those three persons of the Godhead. But regardless, this word, this label Trinity, what's in the jar, has to always reduce to biblical terminology and biblical statement and biblical framework. See, if we're holding on to something, if we have a label for something that cannot reduce to the biblical presentation then are we biblical? And that's all I mean when I say biblical statement and terminology and those kinds of things because I've so often seen where people will make jars and put a label on it and start throwing things in it that really aren't consistent, start adding things to it that are more of human invention than they are of biblical sourcing. And... So in my life, just to preserve my own sanity, keep my own peace, find my own way in the midst of uh, some areas in which there's a lot of crazy teaching, at least as far as I can tell, certainly a lot of different teaching, I finally came to the place where I'm just going to stick with biblical terms. And if those terms fit in the jar, great. But that jar better have biblical material in it. What about when it comes to discipleship? It's a composed label. It's using a word that sort of feels biblical because of all the terms, times in the Bible that disciple is used. But is it being used biblically? Is the jar, the discipleship jar, that's sort of out there in the, I don't know, the world of Christendom. I mean, we know Trinity's out there and everybody has a consensus on Trinity. But when it comes to the jar of discipleship that's out there, well, what goes in that jar? There's really not a consensus that I can tell. A lot of different things being thrown into that jar. Some good, some not so good. Some well-intentioned, but just really ill-defined. And then that jar of discipleship starts taking on a life of its own. It starts becoming the basis of extending or extrapolating, I don't know, doctrinal perspectives that really start to become more and more distant from Scripture. And so that's why we're looking at this. We're looking at this because out there in the, 
in the world of Christendom, we don't really have, you know, like the Trinity, we don't really have a consensus on what discipleship is. And so for disciple is a noun or a verb, mean we're clear, that's in the Bible. For discipleship and then the term, and we're going to do some discipling, I'm going to disciple somebody or somebody's going to be discipled. Um, that's where things start to get a little murky. And so we're trying to bring clarity to that. So my first stab at discipleship, we know what disciple is, and my first stab at discipleship is basically just extending the terminology of disciple a little bit further, and we'll see that I'm trying to borrow from the words of Scripture in these things. Discipleship is personally following Jesus as divine Messiah, only Savior and risen Lord, following him according to his word in the dynamic of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and in the context of a body of believers. That's what I see discipleship is. Those are the ingredients we find in Scripture. And so we'll be continuing with that definition as we go through. We looked a little bit at the significance of discipleship. My plan was to do a bus tour of uh, sort of the Gospels, find the different areas in which disciple is used, maybe different categories. And then I realized, well, I'm going to be going back to Luke, so this is basically, <clears throat> you know, I'm going to be doing Luke pretty soon. Why, why do Luke now and then do Luke again? Or Luke now, Matthew again, whatever. And so we probably won't continue that bus tour. But we did look at some things that are important. There are a number of verses, of course, that, that Jesus says, follow me, follow me, follow me. That's the material of discipleship, the, the fundamental force of discipleship. But there are two passages we did look at that, again, are worth remembering. In Matthew eleven twenty five through 30, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me of my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, these are big ideas. I mean, when you start talking about Jesus, said, hey, everything's been handed over to me by my Father. What does that mean? How big is that? Well, that's as big as God. There's this essential and messianic glory of the Son that we read throughout the Scriptures. Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1 opens with the Son who is the effulgence of His glory. No one knows the Son except the Father. Only God can fully know God. No one knows the Father except the Son and he to whom he wills to reveal him. Those are, those are deep issues, but these are at the center of discipleship. And on the basis of that, Jesus says, come to me. Come and follow me. Take my yoke upon you. Follow me. Learn from me. Obey me. And so it is out of this foundational reality of the Father and the Son that Jesus calls us to discipleship. It is in sovereign grace that he calls empty, broken sinners to be his disciples. All those that are burdened and heavy laden. Come, follow, learn, take my yoke. This is discipleship and trade in guilt and bondage and emptiness to know and love the living God or the universe. I mean, this is the bottom line significance of discipleship. Some might say, well, Steve, that's just Christianity. I'm like, that's my whole point. That's my whole point. 
Discipleship is Christianity. Christianity is discipleship. If you are not a disciple of Jesus, you are not a Christian. If you are not following Jesus according to his word, if you do not have a heart attachment to him, his person, as Lord and Savior, then you've missed the point of Christianity. You've missed what being saved is. In another place, we saw a specific, it's a, just a specific passage, and it's a sobering passage. And there are many, and there, there, there are passages full of joy. There are passages full of other things, but these are, these are passages to give us the significance of discipleship. Jesus told his disciples, he's going to de- describe to his disciples what, what discipleship is at, at, at its, at, in its raw requirements, if you will. If anyone would come after me, it doesn't matter who you are, young, old, big, poor, skinny, not skinny. If anyone's going to come after me, he has to deny himself and take up his cross. You have to come to the place where self is not the center of things anymore. See, Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of my Father. Jesus Christ said, I'm God-centered. And he came to make us God-centered because that's the only place where you try and find true, full, ultimate satisfaction. What's the problem with the world? They think they're going to find satisfaction in this experience or in this relationship or having this stuff. And they keep wanting more and more and more because why? It never really satisfies. Coming to the Lord is what satisfies. And Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple in this present evil world, then you're going to have to deny yourself in some things. You're going to have to deny yourself some legitimate things. Now, we're not talking about monasteries. Monasteries go around saying, let's find everything we can absolutely deny and make our life as hard as possible. I don't think that's what Jesus is meaning. I think Jesus is saying is discipleship in and of itself, its demands, its requirements, the opposition you will encounter, the decisions you will be faced with, the choices you will have to make. You have to be in that place where self is not at the center of things. And you're going to have to make some hard decisions that feel like taking up an actual cross and having to bear it. Deny himself, take a cross, follow me again. This is the essence of discipleship. For whosoever would lose his life, whosoever will find his life will lose it, but whosoever loses his life for my sake will find it again. What are we pursuing? Are we pursuing our own purposes here, our own desires, our own concerns, our own self-fulfillment? Or are we pursuing the Lord and righteousness and truth and kindness and extending ourselves to others? The world is not our home. And we have a soul. Everyone has it. It's more valuable than anything one could ever Possess. The personal soul is that inward reality and identity that makes us us, that will exist beyond the body. It's a unique possession given to each one of us by God. Do we value it? 
Nothing can compare to the worth of the soul, and to lose one's soul is an incomparable loss. It's a catastrophic loss. To lose one's soul ultimately is to lose all meaning, purpose, significance as a human being in every way, at every, at every dimension. The loss of the soul is the greatest loss. And Jesus says, consider it. What will you give in return for it? And he says, because there's a day coming and all discipleship has to live in this reality that there's a day coming when the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. It's going to happen. And at that point, he is going to render to each person according to their works. So the significance of discipleship, my brothers and sisters, anybody here, everything is at stake. Your life is at stake, your soul is at stake, the day of judgment is at stake, your eternity is at stake. That is the significance of discipleship. Well, this morning I want us to turn from there and move to context and What is the context of discipleship? What is the context in which discipleship transpires? What is the framework? How are disciples made is the question. And so we ask the Lord to be with us in that consideration. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne. Lord, there are so many things in your word that uh, give us hope. There's promise, there's joy, there's peace. But all those things come with that sobering reality that we have to be serious about following you. Lord, we know that justification is by free, by the very nature of it. We couldn't earn it ever. There's no way to be justified but by the blood of the Lamb, by your righteousness that you provide in Him, by His propitiation, by His sacrifice by his redeeming blood. There is no other way. And so justification is free and you've given it to us freely and we embrace it freely and we thank you for it, Lord. And if there's any this morning that are just struggling with a past, whether it's a long past or a recent past, Lord, let everyone here bought with your blood recognize that that is our righteousness. Lord, that's where we stand. That's where we have confidence. Lord, if we start looking at ourselves, we'll be up today, down tomorrow, up this afternoon, down later, down in the evening. So Lord, we thank you that your blood cleanses us from all sin. But Lord, we also hear your words that discipleship is going to cost us everything. And Lord, just pray that all one, everyone here would be sober-minded in this and take stock in these things and realize that we don't belong to ourselves and we just can't make decisions when we want to. But Lord, we have to live out of the Holy Spirit and we have to live out of a walk with you and we have to live unto you. That's a privilege, that's a blessing. And we're not going to have everything we might desire in this life. Such strange words that we have to take up our cross in this life and the life to come. You've given us the entire universe. 
those two states of being are just so different. Give us grace, Lord, to know that we are in this era, we are in this time, and there's principalities and powers watching, watching what we do with our lives, watching what we do in our allegiance to you. There's a heavenly Father watching. There's angels watching. Lord, let us always follow you out of love for you and always take serious what discipleship is. And pray this morning as we look at the context that the context will grip us. Just, just give us clarity. Just give us the, the big, simple sense of how and what context disciples are made and that that will govern our thinking. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The context. What is the context of discipleship? Well, I believe we looked at Matthew at one point uh, some weeks ago. But I want us to look at Matthew 28 again, but look at it from the angle of context. What is the context of discipleship? And if you turn to Matthew 28, 16, we can read it briefly. But the eleven disciples went into Galilee unto the mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, (coughs) they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and spoke unto them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Literally the word is go go and disciple the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age or the end of the world. Now, as we take what Jesus said here about you know, how you're to make disciples, I think it's interesting. You know, Matthew has spent 28 chapters presenting Jesus, presenting where he came from. He was born of a Virgin Mary, presenting his preaching and his teaching. You read sort of regularly in Matthew, and he went throughout all Galilee and preached and, and did miracles, or he went here and preached and did miracles, and then Matthew will come and zoom in and say, well, here's what he taught, or here's an example of the miracles. Here's some of them. But he was doing this everywhere. And throughout, there are the continual calls of Jesus in his teaching. He's not just giving us some information about God. His teaching and his preaching are calling people to a commitment of their lives, calling to repentance. John preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. There's these continual calls, and there's a continual explanations of what that call means. We've just read two places. Matthew spent the final chapters of his work <clears throat> or on Jesus' work of redemption. The final chapters of Matthew, like all of the Gospels, focusing on Christ, focusing on his work of redemption on the cross, and focusing on his resurrection. And then Matthew closes, after 28 chapters, with a stunningly brief summary of the commission of Jesus. I mean, think about it. You get one paragraph at the end of 28 chapters to say, okay, here's what you do with all this. I just kind of find it interesting. Like Luke better, he's a little bit more expansive. Gives you a little bit more material. But this is Matthew. We get this, this paragraph, this is what we get. And Jesus starts out with, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Jesus grounds his commission to these 11 apostles, soon to be 12 again in Acts. He grounds his commission in his own messianic reign and glory. (coughs) Jesus starts with what some people might refer to as eschatology. I would too, but probably in a different way that many refer to it as that. And I think, isn't that interesting? See, there's a whole world out there, what, of debate about the second coming of Christ and debate about the kingdom of God and all those things. And yet Jesus grounds his entire commission that he gives to his church in the reality that he has all authority in heaven (coughs) and on earth. And when Jesus says this, I have all authorities been given unto me, he's not just sort of pulling that out of the clouds. Hey, this is a new thing here. I've, you know, I've gone to the cross and I've honored the Father and I've paid for redemption and I've been raised from the dead and now I've been given authority. <coughs> His reference here basically takes the entire Old Testament set of messianic prophecies and pours them into this verse. We see that this is true because Luke, when he expands on this, does that very thing. Jesus says that the Great Commission is based on a recognition of the messianic suffering and the messianic glory and reign. He says, my present reign right here and now is the reason you can go out into all the world and preach the gospel. Making disciples of all the nations, we'll read about, well, that's Genesis 12. And you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. <coughs> Having given you authority in heaven and earth, well, that's Psalm 2. I've already set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and you will rule them with a rod of iron. Messianic reign. Psalm 110, set at my right hand until I make the enemies, your enemies, the footstool of your feet. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Psalm 2, the nations will go to Zion. That's been happening for 2,000 years. Psalm 9, or sorry, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, a king ruling and reigning in righteousness. That's been going on for 2,000 years. Jesus is saying that I have come to fulfill. He said that in Matthew 5. I've not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And this is part of that fulfillment. Oh, thanks. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And it's authority backed by his power. Remember he said the gates of hell won't prevail. I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell aren't stopping it. Well, this is just another statement of it, a fuller statement, a more specific statement. This is why. Whatever the details of our assignments, in any age, in any time, in any place, whatever the opposition, it is a glorified Christ that is behind the commission and he will bring things to pass. And so there's this go therefore. 
And so someone might ask, well, you know, Steve, why here at New Covenant do you labor, you know, about New Covenant theology and things like that? Here it is right here. This is why. Because being clear about those things is the foundation of the Great Commission. Where to go because Jesus reigns now. I remember the day because <clears throat> I was caught up in a bunch of teaching. It was very confusing that Jesus is going to reign in the future. But just put everything into the future. And I remember the day when I saw that Jesus reigns now. I don't know if I was dancing in the clouds, but I sure felt like it. And I've been dancing over it ever since. Pray that the Lord give you, open your heart to have a sense and a vision of Jesus as a present reigning king. And that will certainly energize your prayers with faith more and more. The present reign of Christ under, underwrites all that we do. It's our dynamic and our confidence. The present reign of Christ is the center of the gospel. And Jesus affirms it here. And the rest of the New Testament elaborates it. Go, therefore. Now, where to go, therefore, and where to make disciples of all nations. And you think about it, Jesus talking to 11 disciples, and, and what, what map of the world did they have in their mind? It was very limited at best, right? But even with the limited map they had in their minds, can, can you imagine go and make disciples of all the nations? See, if I was to <coughs> say to Paxton and Ariana, say, hey, Paxton and Ariana, you need to clean up your rooms. Like, ah, oh, sure, okay. Yeah, get them to do that. They, they are probably going to consider it a mountain of work, but they'll get it done. They say, well, you know, let's expand that a little bit. Let's clean up the house. They go, wow, Grandpa, that's a, Pop-Pop, that's a little bit bigger. I'd say, oh, okay. Well, why don't we just get bigger? Why don't we clean up the whole neighborhood? They're going to be going, you're crazy. Well, wait a minute, let's, let's move it to Simpsonville. Let's move it to Greenville County. Let's move it to South Carolina. Let's move it to the United States. So let's move it to the whole world. See how big of a job, how big of a task Jesus puts before these 11 men. <coughs> You're going to go to all the nations. Forget the perplexities of the division between Jew and Gentiles that was still in their minds as we see in Acts chapter 10 with Peter. <coughs> Sorry. Make disciples of all the nations. Cross all political barriers, cultural barriers, social boundaries. Overcome every obstacle and opposition of which there will be many. This is a massive project and involves more than a handful of people in more than one lifetime. It's a project that requires commitment, resources, determination, and involvement, and spans generations. Make disciples of all the nations. And the goal is to make disciples. By this point in Matthew, if one has been reading it, one should be clear, extremely clear about what discipleship is, what it means, how it's done. A disciple is a follower of Jesus whose life is framed by the Sermon on the Mount, or should be. 
whose hope is inspired by the Olivet Discourse, if you can figure out when Jesus is answering which question that was asked. (coughs) Hope. Hope of a new heavens and a new earth. The apostles had watched Jesus preach. They had watched him teach. They watched him feed thousands. They watched him heal multitudes. As interns, they had already gone themselves on preaching excursions. (coughs) Matthew chapter 10. (coughs) So when he says to them, go and make disciples of all nations, there was no question as to what that means for them. They had seen it. They had lived it for years. They had clear definition in their mind. Bring two people to follow Jesus, to live unto him, and to order their lives in repentance and faith. And he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Again, those who respond positively to the gospel message, well, they're to be baptized. I know when I first got saved, I knew nothing about Christianity. I'd really never been in a church before. I knew nothing about you know, this or that, that that I know now. And so when they said I had to be baptized, I'm like, I'm not even sure I know what that means. But if that's what it takes to follow Jesus, that's what I'm going to do. Didn't understand it, but I did it. Because I was supposed to. Baptism represents represents many things. It represents personal faith, personal response to the gospel, personal commitment to Jesus, personal identification with him and his people. (coughs) For some, the Hardest part about baptism is nervousness. That was me. Get me in front of people. was totally nervous. They said I had to get baptized. There's a couple thousand people in the church. And I'm like, oh, no, I got to do that. But I pulled myself up there. And they baptized me. For others, as we've been hearing in Lebanon, baptism is a momentous social divide that can cost them everything in their life. But whether it's nervousness or social break, baptism is important. And Jesus says, everybody who believes, everybody who's made a disciple of Jesus should be baptized. Now the disciples were familiar with baptism. There was John the Baptist, of course. And you read in John 4.1, it's just kind of interesting. It says the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was, you know, making and baptizing more disciples than John. So baptism was part of their experience. So when Jesus says baptizing them <coughs> in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it wasn't strange to their ears. What was new about it was the dimension. <coughs> this is not baptism of John saying there's one to come. This is baptism into the name of the one who has come. (coughs) And is about to go to the right hand of the Father. There's this non-negotiable significance of baptism. (coughs) And those who respond positively to the gospel message are to be taught. We know the goal is to observe, to do, a deeper faith and commitment and godly character in life, so it's, it's observing, it's doing. It's not primarily an intellectual exercise. It is a practical exercise. It is a pedagogical exercise in the sense of growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord. It's comprehensive, teaching them all. 
So do we teach people how to pray? Yes. Do we teach people Jesus' second coming? Yes. You need to be clear on both. How we can say one is more important than the other, I, I, I don't understand that thinking. I truly don't. Jesus said all. Okay? All. It's authoritative, the things that I command you. Jesus is not a personal trainer. He's not a personal life coach. Jesus is Lord and Savior. It's authoritative. And Jesus says, Lo, I'm with you always. <coughs> this is not a project of human purpose or human ingenuity or human resources. It is purposed by Jesus. It is designed by Jesus. It is directed by Jesus. It is guided by Jesus. It is provisioned by Jesus himself. This commission is Jesus building his church. And we must always understand that. It's not my ministry. It's the ministry of the Lord. It's the ministry of the word. It's the ministry that produces disciples, brings people to Christ, and the word of God working in their lives to clean them up and sort them out. <laughs> as followers of Jesus before God their Father. It's dynamic isn't demographic research, it's the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus himself being with us by the Holy Spirit. Jesus being with every one of his saints in every endeavor to build his church, and it's a mission to which we can all contribute, big and little, Sometimes we contribute with money, supporting those who are somewhere bringing the gospel. Sometimes it's our part is to have our own personal witness, someone on the street or at work. Whatever, whatever our contribution is, we are committing and contributing to this bringing the gospel to all nations. <coughs> and this gospel is to be, this commission is for the end of the age. It does have an expiration date. It's the second coming. Until then, this is our directive. Until then, these are our controlling contours. These are the things that govern us. These are the things that define <coughs> our purpose, our trust, our confidence, our, our everything. You see, some today suggest addendums to this commission. They suggest alternatives. They say that we should be engaged in social justice. Well, we should always be engaged in good works. But their version of social justice is usually not the Bible's version of social justice. There are those that will say in our day, you know, well, you know, we got to prepare the world for Jesus, so we need to really fix society and have a reconstruction project and, and get the social order, get America back to be culturally normalized with the Word of God. It sounds noble but I do not read that here. We just don't read it here. It's not part of the mission. And any addendum or alternative to this mission, we have to reject all of them. We have to reject them no, no matter how noble they are. They are out of scope. Anybody who works in a project world where you have to get things done, what's the one thing you don't want to happen? It's called scope, scope creep. We don't need scope creep in the kingdom of God. We need to stay in focus. So that is Matthew's presentation. And remember, the gospels are eyewitness testimony. 
Jesus says a lot of things. And this is necessarily a summary. I'm pretty sure Jesus said more than this in the 40 days that he spoke with his disciples. So this is Matthew's summary, Matthew's eyewitness testimony. And he says this summary encapsulates and captures what Jesus said. He did it by the Holy Spirit, and we can trust it. We can trust summaries just as much as we can trust narrative uh, selection of the uh, writers of the Gospels. We can turn to Mark, Mark 16, and just go through this quickly to see that the same thing is basically being said. Now, Mark 16 is, I know it's part of a disputed ending of Mark. (coughs) Um, That's a topic way beyond our scope. No scope creep on that today. But the ending of Mark, some say, you know, it's, it's not in some of the manuscripts, and, then, and they are significant manuscripts, and it's not a small thing to consider. Some say it's not there maybe because it got lost, or maybe Mark never wrote an ending. All right. Well, whatever it is, whether this is actually Mark's writing or this is an attempt to reconstruct something that was lost, or an attempt to kind of shore up a gospel that seems to leave you hanging, here's what we know. If these are Mark's words, and I'm going to operate on that conviction that they are, then they're the word of God. If they are something that was reconstructed for whatever reason, then we have here a rich piece of documentation, the earliest witness that we have, of what the church actually believed. Because this will have been reconstructed maybe 60, 70, 75 AD. But I'm going on the premise that it is the word of God. It was written by Mark. Mark has a different order of things than we see in Matthew. But it's the same basic content. There's a global commission to all nations, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And I think, gosh, what a, what, a, what a turn of phrase. Jesus says all nations uh, in Matthew, and here it's phrased as all creation. I kind of think in Matthew, he's talking to a group of people that need to know that it's not the Jews only, it's Jews and Greeks. That's the big thing about Matthew. That's the worldwideness has in that it's no longer just Jews, but it's Jew and Gentile, all nations. Here Mark is saying, as you look at the nations, remember who they are. They're not their own. They're in God's world. This is God's creation. And they have obligations to God. And you're to go and tell them what those obligations are. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Again, these two components you believe. How is a disciple made? A disciple is made by, well, we're going to see preaching. And believing is the same as becoming a disciple. You become a disciple through faith. That's the entry point. That's where things begin. Again, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, they're initially made through this proclamation of a gospel message and the response of faith, and those who respond in faith are to be baptized. And that's really not negotiable. He who has disbelieved, he who rejects the message, who responds in unbelief, Remember that the rejection of the gospel is more than just an intellectual exercise. The gospel message comes to someone and says, hey, you're in in the image of God. 
You have accountability to God. You have responsibilities to God. You have privileges with God if you'll take hold of them. And someone says, I don't want it. I don't want to hear about God. I don't want to hear about my accountability to him. I don't want to hear that I need him, that he made me to know him. I don't want this connection with God that you are saying I'm supposed to have. I don't want to do this repentance toward God. The gospel is also an offer of forgiveness and reconciliation. Incredible, God didn't have to offer it. He could have left the whole human race in sin, be just and holy. He offers forgiveness and reconciliation and unbelief spurns and rejects that offer. I don't want God and I don't want what he has to offer me. (coughs) So when a human being consciously rejects the gospel, there's nothing left but condemnation. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned because what is the nature of that disbelief? So when the Lord Jesus spoke unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Well, that summary is rather terse, isn't it? But it's really no more terse than his opening statement. Remember how Mark, the Gospel of Mark opens? The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But, you know, there's, there's not the, the Luke story of three chapters. There's not the Matthew story of two chapters. There's not the prologue of John that this one was from the beginning. But nevertheless, Mark here captures, again, the the essence of things. This gospel that's going out in the whole world is based on someone who's been received in heaven and has sat down at the right hand of God. Mark is using the actual language of Psalm 110. And so again, to relegate issues of the history of redemption to the sidelines as secondary, I think is to miss what Jesus is saying here. And they went out and preached everywhere. We're not sure of the extent of this reference, but maybe it's a summary of Acts. The point is, Jesus said go, and they went. And while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word and by the signs that followed, sort of Mark's version of I'm with you always. And here's the Lord working with them. He's operating with them. And we are out there, you know, going door to door for some folks, uh, down at the mission for some folks. When we're out there, the Lord is with us. We're not necessarily going to feel it every time, but he's there every time. Because I'm pretty sure Jesus is more interested in, in the presentation down at the mission than perhaps we are. Because this is how Jesus brings people to himself, saves his people from their sin. He draws them to himself through that preaching. Things are confirmed. Jesus is confirming things. He's confirming his word. Here, in essence, it's by signs and wonders, but I think all of us have experienced that it goes beyond signs and wonders. When we talk to some people about the Lord, and they, they may at that time not give much heed to what we're saying, but at some point in their lives, God starts to confirm that word in their hearts. Hey, you're going to answer to me one day. Hey, Jesus is the only way. 
hey, you need to repent and believe. Jesus will confirm his word. And so again we see, again we are told that the gospel is a spiritual endeavor. It's pursued using spiritual methods and spiritual dynamics. We can turn to Luke and there are some things that Luke adds to this. Luke chapter 24, 44 and following. Again, we have to remember that this is Luke's selection of material based on multiple eyewitness testimony. A lot of stuff was said in 40 days, and he's got to select out of that what's significant, and he does that selection by the Holy Spirit. Luke says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was yet with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Again, here, Jesus lays at the foundation of the Great Commission the law and the prophets and Moses. He appeals to the Old Testament. And he says to fully understand what I've done. I've been talking to you about these things. These are my words that I've spoken to you. You could go back into Luke and see them. This must be fulfilled. That must be fulfilled. All of the subtle things that, again, are expressions of the Old Testament. Jesus had often spoken about fulfilling what was written in the Old Testament. Oftentimes it eluded the disciples at that point. But nevertheless, Jesus spoke spoke those things. And here at the end of the gospel, the the beginning of the Great Commission, at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus said, "You, you need to understand these things. I am here fulfilling. They must be fulfilled all that was spoken of me in Moses, prophets, and Psalms. Very comprehensive. Then he did something. This is something that uh, some folks might get, I don't know, nervous about. I was saved in Pentecostalism, so I know why they might get nervous. It doesn't make me nervous. It says, then he opened their minds that they would understand the Scriptures. That's an interesting statement. Understanding the scriptures is more than an intellectual exercise. And it's more than biblical exegesis. It just is. There is a spiritual component to understanding the scriptures for which there is no human substitute. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, when I was in Pentecostalism, someone might take something like this and go pretty far afield with things and get into some pretty crazy statements about things. And say, yeah, the Lord's speaking to me, this and that. And I'm like, no, wait, hold on, wait a minute. Get the, get the horses back in the barn here. He opened their minds, the thinking part of your brain, all right, to understand, that's rational thought, that means connected thinking, to understand 
The scriptures. The scriptures are the content. The scriptures are the source. The scriptures are what you're starting to understand in a more significant way, in a more personal way, in a deeper reality than you could attain simply by reading a good commentary. I know, I've read, I read plenty of good commentaries. And I walk away and say, Lord, that was a great intellectual exercise, but it's just bouncing off the heart here. And I'm glad for the intellectual exercise. And it's better than nothing. But this is always what I want in my life. Lord, you know, meet me in this word. When it says God is full of glory and his kindness is everywhere, I want to know that. I want to see that. I want Abba Father in my heart. And this is what Jesus is talking about. So he opens their minds, a very rational process, but also a very spiritual reality, a spiritual reality that goes beyond the attainment of human intellect. It is not flights of fancy. It is flights of understanding the Scripture and its reality and its power and its truth more than just in a human way. It's an experience where God bears witness to his word with personal enlightenment. Paul prays for this for the Ephesians, that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. The eyes of your heart. And in fact, the content is that you might know the glory of Christ in his present resurrection reign at the right hand of God. That's the content of Ephesians. So Jesus opens their minds so they can see this whole plan of salvation, if we want to call it that, which is going to be laid out, spiritually discerned and appreciated and loved and rejoiced in. Remember the two fellows just before this, Jesus had been talking to them and they said, did not our hearts burn within us? That's what Jesus is talking about. After he completes this panorama, as it were, of the Old Testament, probably in summary form, because it would take a long time to go through all the passages and explain every verse. But here's this panorama how the Old Testament talked about some things, thus it is written. It is in Scripture. It's not something you dream up. It's Scripture. Our minds, our hearts, our understanding, our wisdom is always tied to the Word of God. If it's not tied to the Word of God, then in my book it's not of God because I have been in circumstances for years of Pentecostalism where everything just went in every direction people wanted to take it. Our lives, our minds, our thoughts are tied to those holy Scriptures. We find joy in them. We find the power in them of God and the glory of God in them. And Jesus references the core elements of the gospel in sort of a summary form. Thus it's written to summarize it that the Christ should suffer. The cross. Isaiah 53. All of the Old Testament sacrifices. Genesis 22. A movie's been made about that, by the way. Can't tell you whether it's good or bad. I haven't seen it, but it's it's interesting. It's out there playing now. The Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. 
Jesus brought all those passages out, and there are passages about three and third and things like that, and now there's Jonah, you know, in the belly of the whale. All of those things about the resurrection. Psalm 22, Psalm 16. Psalm 2 can't come to pass if there's not a resurrection. The elements of the gospel, and one of those elements, an element that is included in the Old Testament, part of the gospel panorama in the Old Testament, is that repentance and forgiveness of sins is going to be proclaimed in his name. That's why you're baptized into the name of Jesus in places. To all nations. You could spend how much time in the Psalms about the gospel going to all nations? Oh, praise the Lord, oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people. This gospel of repentance is to be proclaimed to all nations in every generation. And this is as much Old Testament prophecy as any other aspect of the work of Christ. And so discipleship, making disciples, bringing people to Jesus is Old Testament prophecy. Jesus said, you're witnesses of these things, and we'll see more of that in Acts. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you again. That's, we see that in Acts chapter 2. Jesus talks all about it in John 13 through 17. But Stay in this city until you're clothed with power from on high. So hang around until Acts chapter 2, and then you can go forth and do these things. So as Jesus is leaving, here's the last picture we see of him in Luke, the actual, this picture of Jesus going up into heaven with his hands out, blessing. So when we look at these, what are the features? What is the context of discipleship? What is the context of making disciples? There is Old Testament fulfillment. There is a messianic reign. There is global proclamation. There is conversion. That is to make disciples, to preach. People believe they come to Christ. And those folks are baptized. And then there's the ongoing teaching that that happens. And it's all in the dynamic of the Holy Spirit. And again, someone says, well, well, Steve, wait a minute. That's just the Great Commission. That's just, you know, what we've been doing for 2,000 years. I'm like, yeah, that is. That's what should be in the discipleship jar. So next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking in the book of Acts and seeing how this is fulfilled. It's really thrilling, two chapters, chapter one and two. But See how this is done. See how this transpires. See more of the actual context of discipleship. For now, I just say, if, uh, if you believed in Jesus, then you are part of this. Rejoice in the Lord. No matter what state you're in, just take some time. Just say, Lord, I thank you that you bought me with your blood and this is what I'm part of. This is where I find my life and my joy. Sure, there's lots of things in life. We get married, we have children, all those things. But this is at the center of it. And so if it's not at the center of your life, then just ask the Lord to make it that. See if he doesn't answer you. And here at New Covenant, this is what we're going to be always governed by. These are the contours of making disciples. It's these things. 
So we're going to talk about Jesus dying. We're going to talk about Jesus rising. We're going to talk about Jesus reigning at the right hand of God in a, as a present reality. Because these are all the components of the Great Commission. We're going to want people to walk with God. We're going to want people to develop true Christian character that lasts, that, that's stable, that endures. We're going to want the Holy Spirit to be with us, and so pray for that. So these are things we can pray for. We're going to have our minds thinking out in, gosh, Lebanon and CAR, and if the Lord gives us another specific place where we have some bite-sized investments, that's what we'll do. We'll be looking more in the neighborhoods that are around us. Some possible new opportunities I'm thrilled with. And this is what governs us here. So find your life in it. Find your joy in it. Because Jesus is wholly invested in this. And let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne. and Lord, we all have our little lives. And there are lots of things in it that are meaningful. In all parts of it, we truly do want to glorify you, not as some faux spiritual statement, but as something that's just real. Lord, we want to uh, love you. We want to follow you. We want to uh, hone that character that you have said we should have. And uh, we want to always obey you in little things and big. And in all our decisions, Lord, we want to do it with reference to you. Lord, I know uh, we get to pick our own ice cream choices but other things in life, bigger ones, sometimes we, just, we always need to run them by you in prayer. And, um, Lord, just pray that you would just be with us in these things. We pray as a body together we would just have a sense of gospel project and always be praying for the saints in CAR and the gospel going forward there and the saints in Lebanon and, and their preservation and, and the gospel going there, their boldness, their ability to speak into a world that we could never speak into. And Lord, just pray in the, uh, just the, the space around us, the neighborhoods around us. There's all kind of people who have all kind of, uh, I don't know, just sin in their lives. They just, they're just don't know you and they're not walking with you and their lives reflect it. And just pray we can reach out to them with true hearts. Uh, reach out, Lord, with your compassion and your, your love for sinners. Lord, you came into the world to save sinners. And, we can go to these folks and tell them about a gospel with a smile on our face because we know you can save anybody. Anybody. And Lord, just press, you just bless us here at New Covenant that we would be in our place, in our space, a shining light unto you. In Jesus' name, amen.